welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Jesus' statement that he was the light of the world made enough of an impression on John that the word light appears six times in the first nine verses of his gospel. What impression will it make on you? Teaching team member Jeff Norris continues the series Pictures of Jesus with this message entitled, I am the light of the world which covers John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, and chapter 8, verse 12. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Well, if you were with us last week, uh, you know that we started a new series that we're calling Pictures of Jesus. And the reason we're calling it this is because what this series is doing, what we're doing uh, in each week of the series is we're looking at one of the I am statements of Jesus. There were seven I am statements recorded for us from the mouth of Jesus, recorded for us in the book of John. I mentioned this last week, um, the gospel of John, the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, it's unique in that it's not, it's, it, there's a lot of difference in, in terms of um, the stories that were told in John as compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell a lot of the same stories and a lot of the same sequence. And then you get to John and you see some of those same stories, but John relays to us some of the things that we weren't told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke about Jesus and some of the things that he said. And one of the things that he did is he recorded for us these seven I am statements where Jesus makes this really profound declaration about himself, about who he is, and, and at the time, it's certainly profound for us now, but at the time in first century Israel, uh, it was really even beyond profound, these statements that he made. They were really offensive in many ways, certainly to first century Jews. And so this series is really tailored around asking this question of, okay, what did Jesus say about himself and why was it so important? Why is it so significant what is it that we really need to tap into? And so, so last week we talked about the first I am statement, which is uh, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And if you missed that sermon, the nutshell of that sermon was this, that it's, it's in Jesus alone, in, in Christ and Christ alone, that we have the longing for soul satisfaction that we long for. Uh, he's the only one that provides it. He's the one for whom we were created. He is the one who, when we eat of him, so to speak, spiritually dine upon him, uh, set our hearts on him by faith in him, that we are then satisfied at the core level, at the soul level, not just now, but for all of eternity. And so that was kind of the, the main theme of last week. This week we'll look at the second I am statement. And to lead us into that, I want to tell you a story. The story is this. In 2007, there was a science, uh, scientific study that was conducted in in the UK, uh, where six people volunteered, knowingly, fully knowing what they were getting into. There was no bait and switch. They were, they were uh, fully told what was, what was going to happen. But they volunteered to be a part of this experiment where they would be placed in pitch black isolation for 48 hours. Now, you hear that and you go, okay, 48, two days. That may not be too bad. Um, they conducted the experiment in a former nuclear uh, bunker. One participated, uh, participant commented, she said, uh, we were in a small underground chamber, no bigger than a prison cell. The door was locked. The lights were switched out. It, does not, it was not just dark. It was pitch 
black. She went on to say, we've heard this often. We use this as a, you know, a phrase. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face, but they were commenting, all the participants were commenting that literally, like no matter what you did, no matter how hard you tried to focus on something that would be some little sliver of light that would help me begin to adjust my eyes and see something, that never happened. Complete and utter darkness. Now, one of the participants in this was a comedian in the UK, a guy named Adam Bloom. And Adam, um, he said that the first several hours, he told himself jokes, he laughed, he sang, he was very jovial, and he thought, no big deal. But within 24 hours, Bloom had completely lost track of time and began to feel extreme paranoia and anxiety. His mental awareness was decreasing rapidly. He would say later, without light, it was almost impossible to stimulate myself and my brain felt as though it was going to sleep at all times. Within 30 hours, at the 30 hour mark, he began uh, pacing the room endlessly. And at 40 hours, he began hallucinating greatly. He goes on to tell all the things that he began to see. Here's the point. Light is essential to life. It's how we were created. We need light. I mean, none of us, I don't, I don't think any of us, one of you may come up to me afterwards and say, no, actually, I would prefer that, but I, I, this would be a shock to me. None of us in our right minds would say, I would love to live with no light. Give me darkness at all times. Give me, can't see in front of my hand, darkness at all times. We say, no, that would be miserable. That would be terrifying. Light is essential to life, yet spiritually speaking, what the scriptures teach us is that all people, since Adam and Eve, since sin came into the world, all of us are born into spiritual darkness. That that's our reality. And because that's our reality and because that's what we're born into, we're not sinful because something we do, we're sinful because that's who we are, it's our nature. We are dark spiritually in nature. Our hearts are darkened by sin. And so because that's our reality, we don't know. Left unto ourselves, we don't know that there's any other reality. And so darkness to us is light. And we think that's all there is. We don't even know that there's a light to be found. We don't even know that there's some maybe little sliver of light that we should try to be focusing on so that our eyes, the eyes of our hearts will adjust and that we will experience some new reality as light floods into the heart of our hearts and into our world. So darkness is our reality, and in the midst of that, Jesus makes this profound statement that's our second I am statement. He says this in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, anytime we read scripture, particularly when we're reading something like this, not in an antagonistic way, although you may be antagonistic towards the faith, but more so in a, uh, in a critical way of to say, okay, I don't want to just read something and, and just say, okay, I, I believe that. We want to think and we want to we really say, okay, how can we know that's true or is that true? Think about it. I mean, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. That's a, that's a pretty profound statement, right? I mean, there's a lot of lights out there. There's a lot of things that we run to, and this is a lot of what last week's sermon was about, but there's a lot of things that we go to that are light to us that we think are going to give us the meaning and the purpose and the value and the identity that we so long for. 
And so there's all kinds of counterfeit light out there, right, according to the scriptures, and we'll look for it in, in a relationship and all kinds of things. We write poems and songs where part of the lines that we write are, you are the light of the world for me or the light of my life, meaning you give meaning and purpose that I didn't think I could have. And so how can we then believe that Jesus would be able to say, I am the definitive light of the world, right? And then when you accompany it with all these other I am statements that he's going to make, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And when he says, I'm the way, the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the father except through me. When he says, I am the good shepherd, I am the gate, no one enters into the father's presence apart from me, I'm the door. I mean, he says some things that we go, wow. And even his first century audience, way more than us, went, uh-uh, you can't say that. You're crazy, man. Really? I mean, like, did you know this? Did you know that um, scholars have estimated that somewhere around 30, maybe 30 plus people in the life, during the life of Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior? Why aren't we talking about those guys? I can tell you why. One of the reasons is because when they would make statements like this, I am the light of the world, people would laugh and go, uh, no, dude, you're not. Like, I know you. You are not the light of the world. <laughs> but Jesus says it, says it, and we're 2,000 years later, billions of followers throughout the history of time who have believed that, okay, when the wackos said it, everybody knew it was a wacko. When Jesus said it, some people thought he was a wacko, but there were a lot of people that went, I think there's tr truth in this one. What set him apart? What made him different? Could it be that he is who he says he is? That he really is the bread of life? That he really is the light of the world to whom we can run and never walk in darkness again? So let's go to the text. John chapter 7. Last week we kind of walked through John chapter 6. I told you last week John 6 is the the longest chapter, one of the longest chapters in the Bible. And uh, so we didn't read the whole thing, but we kind of told you the story of all that was happening in John 6, and then we read kind of the, the middle section of the chapter. And so same kind of thing today. I'll tell you what's going on in John chapter 7, and then we'll read a couple of, of parts of it. But uh, at the end of John chapter 6, let me give you a quick little recap of where we were last week. Uh, it, well, let me say, let me start with the beginning of John chapter 6. We are, we are, ushered into the story of Jesus's ministry um, and he is at the height he is at the climax the pinnacle of his fame on earth at the beginning of John chapter 6 he's at rock star status there's a frenzy around him people are hysterical ready to take him by force and declare him and make him king because they're seeing all the miracles that he's doing, the healings that he has performed, and they say, okay, we've seen all that we need to see. This man must be the Messiah, but they don't understand the nature of the true Messiah. They think Jesus, uh, when the Messiah comes, and if it's this Jesus who's, who's come to, to be the Messiah, then uh, he's going to march into Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman authorities, and then he's going to go all the way into Rome. And the next thing we know, we're going to have our Jewish kingdom back and our land back and all these things. And that's what he's come to do. And so when Jesus sees that they're about to take him by force to make him king in John chapter 6, he flees. He gets out of there to where that can't happen because he came for a different reason. They didn't realize that he came to give his life as a ransom for many for the sins of the world. So then, this is after, by the way, that was after the feeding of the 5,000, one of the greatest miracles that he had ever done. 
So then they, they chase after him. They're still trying to get him to come and be king. And Jesus makes this statement, I am the bread of life. You're seeking me for all the wrong reasons. You want, the, you want me to keep filling your belly with food when what I came to do was fill your soul with my presence. And then he gets to the end of John chapter 6 and it gets weird. He starts saying things like, if you want to follow me, you've got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And everybody says, you know, I, I think it might be time to go home. Because remember, this is pre-cross. Like, again, they don't understand why he came. and They don't understand that he's, his mission is to the cross, to die for you and me, to, to, to take upon our sin, nail it to the cross. And so they don't get that. And so when he's saying this, he, we know now, post-cross and understanding communion and the understanding of faith in Jesus means to dine upon him spiritually, to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, so to speak. But they think cannibalism, and they say, okay, we, we're out of here. So by the end of chapter 6, the, the majority of people who had been in a frenzy around him are gone. They've gone home and said, okay, things just got weird, I'm out of here. So we pick up in John chapter 7. This leads us straight into one of the greatest festivals, feasts, that the Jewish people celebrate, have celebrated every, every year since the Exodus. And they even still celebrate it today. Even down in Atlanta, there's an Orthodox Jewish synagogue where if you drive down there, kind of near where in-town community church is, in that area, they, you will still see them celebrating this festival, the Feast of Booths. This is what it says, uh, John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Verse 2, now the Jews' Feast of, the, of Booths was at hand. So let me give you, I just want to give you context. I'm assuming that most of us, if not all of us in here, don't know what is involved with this feast, with this festival. In your Bible, it may say uh, Feast of Tabernacles. And, and same thing, they would use one of the kind of two different words there meaning the same thing. But the Feast of Booths is what I'll call it. And the booth is uh, meaning that in the, they're looking back to celebrate and commemorate all of God's faithfulness and provision as he led his people out of slavery in Egypt. It's part of the Exodus. And as he led them out, he led them into the wilderness for a season. As they lived in the wilderness, they basically lived in makeshift tents, in these booths, these little tabernacles, these little tent dwellings, which is kind of what tabernacle alludes to. And so what the people of God would do is, is God kind of gave them instructions in Leviticus and in Numbers through Moses. He said, okay, I want you to commemorate every year in October. We know, we know the dates. We know that it would happen every October from October 15th to October 22nd. It was a seven-day festival. And during those seven days, the people of God are to pilgrimage uh, to Jerusalem. And the, and the city of Jerusalem, by the time of Jesus, would triple in population during this week. And everyone there, even if you lived in Jerusalem and had a house in Jerusalem, everyone would fix this little booth made of sticks and leaves and you would live in this makeshift tent for a week to basically say they lived in it, our forefathers did for 40 years or for however long it was, we can do it for a week and we want to commemorate them. Now, having understood that, this is the point. Tune in here because it makes sense of what Jesus says later. There were two huge focuses of the Feast of Booths two elements that everything was centered around. The first one was water, okay? What they would do is they would look back again to the Exodus and they would celebrate and remember how God had provided for his people water in the wilderness. 
Remember the story of when Moses struck the rock of Meribah and and water flowed out to quench the thirst of his people who were so thirsty in the wilderness. Part of it was also not just to look back, but to be in the present, to thank God for his provision of rain now for the harvest. And then there was this third aspect of it where the water was also to signify that we're looking forward to the day that not just that God continues to provide water for us, but to where the water represents the spirit of God who will be poured out when the Messiah comes. Ironically, the Messiah is with them and they don't recognize him. And so there's this past, present, future thing that's going on here, all centered around water. And here's what they would do. The priest, on every morning of the seven days of the festival, he would take this pitcher, this golden pitcher from the temple. And with a solemn procession around him, he would walk from the temple, south of the temple, down to the very southern tip of the old city of Jerusalem. And he would dip this pitcher, this golden pitcher, into the pool of Siloam. And he and that solemn procession would make their way back to the temple. And the reason it was solemn is because of what was about to happen. Because when they would get to the temple doors, the trumpets of the temple would would sound. And all of a sudden, everyone who was gathered around in the procession and now around the temple would rejoice. And music would be played and they would sing and they would dance and tambourine shaking. And it was a party as the priest made his way into the temple. And what he would do is he'd walk up to the sacrifice, the altar of sacrifice in the temple. And there was this makeshift funnel type thing that he would pour the water into that would go to the base of the altar of sacrifice. And you go, cool, man. Why is that a big deal? Here's why it's a big deal. The water for them was so significant to the celebration. It was central to the celebration of what they were doing here. To say, God, you are the one who provides water. We thank you what you did. We thank you what you're doing now. We thank you for when you will pour out, as they poured out on the altar, the spirit of God in our midst. Now, understanding that, listen to what Jesus says in John 7, 37, listen to this. This is incredible. On the last day of the feast, that's the Feast of Booze, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, the stood up part we wouldn't know about, but if you're teaching in the temple, which is where Jesus was, uh, when you teach in the temple, you sit down. So for him to stand up signified something great that he was about to say, and he didn't just say it. He kind of yelled it. He cried out so that all around could hear And he says this, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now listen to verse 39. Now this uh, this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's, He's essentially saying, and it would not have been lost on these people. It would not have been over their heads. They knew exactly what he was doing. He's saying, hey, we've just spent a week centering all of our celebration, all of our worship, all of our commemoration, all of our dancing and singing and drinking and eating and this party that we've been having. One of the key elements has been water. And by the way, all of that is about me. That water that in the desert, in the wilderness, way back then in the, in the Exodus that came out of the rock to nourish you, to, to nourish our forefathers and quench their thirst temporarily. Yeah, um, I'm the fountain of living waters who that water pointed to, to not just be a temporary thirst quencher, but an eternal, eternal thirst quencher. Like I'm, I'm that water in so much greater form. 
And that spirit that you long for to be poured out, that you're looking forward to the day when the Messiah comes, that time is now. Spirit is coming, Pentecost. The time is near. This is why Jesus said all the time, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, then he says this. We've already read it, but you flip over to John chapter 8. Same context, still in the context of the Feast of Booths. And he says, I am the light of the world. Now, why is that significant? Well, because another part of the Feast of Booths was this. On the first morning of the feast, of the festival, they would light these four massive lamp candelabra type things in the temple. And this too, just like the water, was to commemorate and look back at how God had provided light in the wilderness to lead his people through the wilderness uh, in the desert. Remember the story where it talks about how he would lead his people by cloud by day, pillar of fire by night? And so in order to commemorate that and celebrate that, they would light these big, huge candelabras in the temple and and it would illuminate the temple, but they would open every door of the temple and whatever window type thing that they had in there so that the light would flood out into the city. And scholars that have done the research and kind of read all these documents back then have said that uh, it's been documented that there was no place you would be in the city of Jerusalem where you would not be able to see the light of the temple during the Feast of Booths. On top of that, they would have these torch parades where the people of God would walk through the city with torches, proclaiming God's greatness because God is light. This is a major Old Testament theme. I actually studied, went through all of them, and I wanted to read them to you, but then it was like, okay, that'd be most of the sermon to read all these passages from the Old Testament where it speaks to this theme of light, that God is light and that his people are, be, are to be a light to the nations. And so they would carry around these torches throughout the week to celebrate light. And so it's in that context, right? You're tracking with me, right? So water, everything's about water. He says, I'm the fountain of living waters. That's all about me. He gets to light. And he says, yeah, all this light that we've been celebrating, I am the light of the world. Let's just stop for a second. This is crazy. Like enter into the story. Think about it. Put yourself there. 1,500 years of tradition of ritual tradition that God had instructed his people to do every year in October to celebrate these things, water and light, and how they point to him and his provision. 1,200 years, 1,500 years, this debate over how long it had been, but point, point is long time. And Jesus stands up in the midst of that and says, all of that was pointing to me. I'm the fountain of living waters, I'm the light. All of it. Me. Okay, I don't know how to help us wrap our minds around this, but I thought of something that may or may not be good. Just giving you a preface. What, what tradition do we have in America? Okay, America's 243 years old. 1,500 years, 243, not long. And we have traditions, right? One of the traditions that we have is we celebrate our independence on 4th of July. And, and with that tradition, with that remembrance each year, that commemoration of our independence, it's really not all that different in some ways of what the Jewish people were doing. It was like this time to commemorate what had happened in the past and say, this is awesome. And so what do we do with that? Fourth of July, we gather around with family and friends. We eat hot dogs. We eat hamburgers. We, uh, we just have a great time together. We pray, oh God, would it not rain? Because what do we want to do at night? 
we want to shoot fireworks. We want to light up the night sky, right? And be in awe and wonder. Now imagine this. Imagine that um, you're, you're at your town center or wherever you are and you're gathered with several thousand people and you've put out your lawn chairs and everybody's gazing at the sky and you're amazed and the big finale comes and everybody's like, oh, you know, and everybody claps. It's like, that's the best one I've ever seen. I can't believe it lasted so long. And we're amazed with the fireworks, right? What if at the end of that, right before everyone leaves, somebody stands up and with speakers and microphone where everyone can hear Someone stands up and he says, hey, by the way, guys, 243 years of tradition of celebrating independence, the fireworks, yeah, um, that's really all about me. I'm your independence. We'd go, okay, man. Sure thing. Somebody get him. He's had too much to drink. You know, like one of those things. They're like, What? That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's changing, he's altering the history of God's people to say, you have to see in this moment that I'm declaring something about myself that's not just some pithy analogy that light is cool and so I'm the light of the world, but no, everything that you know about your history has from the very beginning been pointed to me and I'm here and standing before you, the fulfillment of God in your midst, it's time. Trust in me. And then listen to what he says. He gives two promises. These are our two takeaways for the day. Simple observations of the text, not anything profound, but listen to what he says. In John chapter 8, verse 12, where he says, I am the light of the world, he gives us a promise behind it. And it says this, whoever follows me will not, definitive promise there, will not walk in darkness. So the first thing, just simple thing to, to take home with you today is that following Jesus leads us out of darkness. It's just that simple. Or, or, or to say it another way would be, would be this. When you meet Jesus, things change. When we meet Jesus, things change. He leads us out of the only reality we've ever known that we thought was light but it was really darkness. And he illuminates our hearts and our minds to this whole new reality as he calls us out of darkness. Listen to the, some other passages of scripture that emphasize this. Colossians 1, 11 through 14 says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints where? In light. Now listen to this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 9. Uh, this is a verse we looked at just a few weeks ago. Uh, when Randy was teaching through the series on the church, it says this, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Why? Because he is the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we get this language of that God is the one through Jesus who calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light, into the, the kingdom of his beloved son. Now listen to the words of John in 1 John, a shorter letter that John wrote in addition to the Gospel of John. He says this, 
He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Did you catch what it said there? If we say we, God is light, in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here's the truth. God is light, as the scripture tells us. In him is no darkness at all. We are born into darkness, so we're dark spiritually. And what happens when we believe upon Christ and we are united to light, the light of the world, Jesus himself, light always wins. Light always invades. When have you ever walked into a room filled with light and said, oh, uh, let's, let's turn on the darkness? Darkness doesn't, it, it never invades the light. So point being is that when we are united to Christ, believing upon Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the light of the world, the only one who can deal with our sin problem, the only one who can transform us, when we believe upon him, light invades and we will no longer walk in darkness. Now, that doesn't mean we won't sin anymore. It doesn't mean we won't struggle anymore. But what it does mean is that we are now keenly aware of the darkness that we were in. And we long for it to be different and we're running to Jesus to change it. And so with that, that reality, we're running to him to do what only he can do, to change our hearts bit by bit, to lead us to places of repentance, to say, Lord, I see it now. I didn't see it before, but since the light came on in my heart and my mind because of your grace, I see now the darkness that I used to walk in. And Lord, I'm still struggling with that, but I long for it to be different because the light of the world is now in me. There's many, many people I want to be careful with this because I don't want to make anyone who is in the light, who does know Jesus, doubt their salvation. But there are many, many people, even as Jay talked about in the video before the sermon, who've walked an aisle, who've been in church a really long time and know how to do the church game, but are still very much in darkness. Light has not invaded, the light of Jesus, the light of the world has not invaded their heart. And they are still very much, although proclaiming outwardly, yeah, I'm a Christian, of course. Look how long I've been in church. Look at the ways I've led in church, whatever it may be. But reality is this, darkness is what defines everything about them. There is no repentance. There is no awareness. There is no running to Jesus to do what only he can do. And we live lives completely in darkness. Maybe it's some blatant immorality, but maybe it's something more hidden in the heart and we don't take it to the Lord and we don't even think it's dark. And to those people, the scriptures would say, be warned. Be warned that although you may proclaim that you are in the light, you may not be. And so examine our hearts and see, God, are you changing me as the light of the world only you can do? The second thing he promises is this. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. But then he gives another promise. He says, but will have the light of life. This, again, a little bit of last week's sermon, but you want life? 
It's only found in Jesus. The way life was intended to be, the way God created life to be, we'll look for it in a million different places, but it's only ultimately found in Christ. Listen to these words from other places of of where John wrote as well. In the first chapter of John, he says this, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So in him was life. Then he says in John 10, 10, just a couple chapters over, we'll look at this in a couple weeks. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that's not what that's not saying. It's not saying, uh, you know, don't believe the heresy of the prosperity gospel that says you believe upon Jesus and then abundant life comes in the form of material wealth and possessions and no sickness and all that. That's a lie. God never promises circumstantial prosperity on this earth. He may give it to us, but he never promises it. What he's talking about is the abundant life that is found only in us where peace, joy, rest for our weary souls comes in the person of Jesus. And we experience a life in him that we've only dreamed of. A lot of what we're talking about with light is this. We see by the light, right? I mean, that's just a common understanding. When the light comes on, we can suddenly see things we didn't see before. We we walk around in the darkness, we stumble, we run into things. It's part of why we're scared of the dark. It's because we don't know what's there. The light comes on and we go, oh, now I see. So I want to make this simple statement as we come to a close here. When we see by the light of Jesus, we see anew. We see fresh. We see things we didn't see before. You remember the story I told you about Adam Moon, the guy that was in the experiment? Listen to what he says as he came out. They kind of did an exit interview, if you will, with these participants. And he said this. He says, when we had arrived at the bunker before the experiment, I thought it was all rather bleak. The exterior of the bunker was all overgrown, and it was largely an eyesore. But when I left after 48 hours, I noticed how green the grass was around the bunker. I noticed how blue the sky was and hundreds of yellow buttercups. It was staggeringly beautiful. Even washing my hands under the tap was amazing. And I made a vow that I would never not notice and appreciate my surroundings again. When we meet Jesus, the light of the world, we see anew. How does that even actually happen? Here's here's how it happened. It happened at the cross. It didn't happen because Jesus stood up in the temple one day in the context of the Feast of Booths and said, I'm the light of the world. And we say, okay, and everything changes. It changed at the cross. Jesus hanging on the cross as he has shouldered the sin of the world. He declares out in this Aramaic word, right before he takes his final breath, this this word which says, to telestai, which is, it is finished. I've done it. I've lived the perfect life that men and women can't live, and I've done it for them. And now I've taken the penalty of their sin upon me, the penalty and wrath that they should get. I'm shouldering now. And so it's finished, oh God, my Father. The work is done And I breathe my last. And when he breathes his last and he says, into your hands, O Lord, do I commit my spirit? And then he dies. Do you remember what happens? Everything goes dark. Everything gets dark. The sun loses its light at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. You ever wondered why that happened? 
It's because the light of the world willingly chose to absorb our darkness so that we could walk in his light. And it's at that moment that the God of the universe is physically, spiritually, and even representatively in the world around us saying the darkness that should be all over you is on him. I'm pouring it out as your substitute. Why? Because I love you so much. I long for you to walk in the light of my son. And when we enter into his light, we see afresh and we see anew. And everything changes. Because Jesus is the light of the world. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your grace that teaches our hearts to understand and our minds to comprehend the glories of who you are, Jesus. Father, I pray for those who are in the room right now who are walking in darkness. And even now as we pray, your Holy Spirit is pounding hard on their hearts. Calling them out of darkness into your marvelous light. God, would you do that? Would you invade hearts even now in this very moment with your light, Jesus? Open eyes to see your beauty. God, we ask for that. We can't make it happen. Only you can do it. So we ask that you would do what only you can do. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.